In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. A few weeks ago in the liturgy, we read these words from the letter to the Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And as we begin this time of prayer with our Lord, that's a great reminder. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That when we read scripture in the prayer, especially when we read the words of the word, the words of you, our Lord Jesus Christ, we're not just reading ideas. We're not just reading about events. We're in contact with a powerful reality. The word of God is living and active. Jesus' words are powerful. They can convert us and change our heart, and change our life. Make things happen. Shake things up in my life. They're reliable. They're true words. The Word of God is living and active. And for our prayer, we can look at some of these words of our Lord from a scene that we're probably familiar with from the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Perhaps the first thing we could do in our prayer is simply to imitate Jairus, that all of us have concerns and perhaps we have some pressing concern, some overwhelming worry or intention or anxiety. And we can use this time of prayer to imitate Jairus, to run towards our Lord and to fall at his feet and to beg him for, for help with that problem, with that concern. And we try to do it with faith, with confidence in him, just like this man did. The gospel goes on to tell us that on the way to Jairus' house, Jesus is interrupted by this woman who has a hemorrhage, and she approaches Jesus again with a lot of faith, a lot of confidence. If I touch even his garments, I shall be made well, she says to herself. And then at work, she touches Jesus, and the power, the healing power goes out from him, and he's not even aware of who touched him. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The power of our faith in Jesus' help, the power of our faith in Jesus' goodness. And then it picks up the story of Jesus and this, and this man, Jairus, and his daughter. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. 
the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What wonderfully hopeful and powerful words of our Lord. Do not fear, only believe. And isn't this what it means to have hope? To address our fears with belief. To address our fears with trust in God. To replace fear, we could say, with trust in God. Lord, help us to hear these words from your lips as words that are active and true, powerful in my heart, in my mind, in my life. Do not fear, only believe. And we note that our Lord is not telling Jairus that the fear is groundless. He's not saying, don't worry, there's nothing to be afraid of. Don't worry, there's no problem. As a matter of fact, there is a problem. His daughter is dead. Rather, what our Lord is telling him is that his goodness and his power is greater than the cause of fear. Even if she is dead, which she is, even if the worst thing has happened, Jesus is saying, there's no ultimate ground for fear. There's no ultimate cause for fear. I can still fix this situation. I can still heal it. I can still bring good out of it. And this is the virtue of hope. This radical trust in God, that God is greater than any difficulty in my life. And that God will help me live through it in the way that He wants me to live through it, in a way that's, that's pleasing to Him. God is infinitely greater than anything that can happen to me. God is more powerful than anything that can happen to me. And that same God, that same God loves me. He's my Father and He wants my good. This consideration moves St. Paul to say, all things work unto the good for those who love God. As long as we're trying to be good people, and starting over when we sin and trying to rely on God's grace and, and love Him and others and do what's right. St. Paul says, whatever happens to you works unto your good. That's how powerful God is and that's how wide His love is for you. St. Augustine with his characteristic daring and theological insight, also the experience of his own life, his life of sin and then conversion. St. Augustine commenting on this says, even our sins, that's how powerful God's goodness is, God's mercy is, that even the things that are very bad, the worst things, the things that make us bad, our sins, God can turn unto our good through repentance, through mercy. Do not fear, only believe. The Catechism of the Catholic Church helps us with Understanding this virtue of hope, we read in point 1817, Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promise and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So hope has these two sides. On the one hand, it's to address our problems or difficulties with trust in God, with this great confidence that God is bigger than our problems and that He wants to help us. 
But the other side is this side of, of our desires, of fostering a desire for God, a desire for eternal life, a desire for heaven as our happiness. The Psalms express this very beautifully. We read in the Psalms, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord, and He will make you happy. He will give you what you really want. Another wonderful truth that we should consider in our prayer slowly and let it sink in. This God who's all-powerful, this God who is greater than anything in my life by far, that same God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be content. He wants me to be peaceful. He wants me to be fulfilled. And you, Lord, who are my creator and my God, you know that I have to love the right thing in the right way in order for this to happen. And so you give me the virtue of hope, which takes my desire for happiness, my desire for peace and for fullness. And it directs it to you and it directs it to eternity because you are eternal. So we exercise our, our hope in God by trusting Him in, in our difficulties, but also by more and more coming to desire Him as our happiness, by learning how to enjoy the presence of God, how to delight in, in the Lord, delight in the things of God. And this is difficult, and a little bit, a little bit it might be annoying, right? If someone comes to us and says, well, yeah, you think that's going to make you happy, but you don't know what's good for you. You don't really know what you want or what's going to make you happy. Well, that might be condescending, right? And we might bristle at that suggestion that we don't know what's good for us and someone else has to tell us. But here we need humility and also once again trust that God loves us more than we do. God loves you more than you love yourself. God knows you better than you know yourself. And so if God tells you, this will make you happy and not these other things, well, then he's right. And, and that's a good truth for us to learn and to practice and to consider. And many times, many times our suffering in this life and our lack of trust in God, our struggling with God's will, come precisely because we think that something is so important. We think that something is so essential. And we beg God for it. Give me this. I need this. Or take this away. This is unbearable. And God basically says to us, no, you don't. You don't need that. And so I'm not going to give it to you. You don't really need that. So I'm going to take it away. And for us, our human heart, which loves these the things of this world, loves those things that we are attached to, we rebel, and it's very painful for us to get that lesson from God. But it's a lesson of hope, and it's a lesson of happiness. The virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life is our happiness. And so this is necessary for our life. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So it's helpful for us to think about heaven, to think about being happy with God forever in heaven, and to think that only there will I be definitively happy without any lack or any 
any suffering. And this is an important point, especially during difficult times, because at times we confuse the theological virtue of hope, which directs us to heaven and directs us to God as our, as our happiness, as the source of our hope. We confuse that with a kind of natural or human optimism. And so we think that, oh, the person who has hope is someone who thinks that the things in this world are going to get better. And if not uh, right away, then pretty darn soon. That natural optimistic attitude of, oh, don't worry, things will be okay, everything's going to turn out fine. And that's not precisely the virtue of hope. It's, it's kind of a distortion of the Christian virtue of hope. Because the reality is, if you know history, or if you've been alive for, for a while and lived life, the reality is that, well, sometimes things don't get better. And sometimes the worst things do happen. That there are wars, and there are persecutions, and there are famines, and there are economic recessions, and there are personal and familial tragedies, and there's sickness, and there's death. And there's pandemics and there's all sorts of things that happen in this in this world that that run contrary to our human hopes or our human optimism. So I don't want to be overly pessimistic. I, I just think it's a realistic statement or stance that things might not turn out well for us in this life according to our human hopes or human plans. And this is what happens to the martyrs, right? What martyr graduates from high school and is uh, selected by his classmates to be, you know, most likely to be skinned alive and boiled in a pot of oil. And he's kind of excited about that. Yeah, a great future ahead of me. This is what I want, to be persecuted and killed. And yet, who is more hopeful than a martyr? Facing the worst things this side of eternity with courage, with trust, with a desire to see God. And so, Lord, help us to distinguish, to realize that trust in you, hope in you, do not fear, only believe, is not a naive human optimism. Rather, it's a vision of eternity, a vision that our true home, our true safe place, our true fulfillment is not in this life, but in the next our Lord says this very clearly to us. In the world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. The world in its goodness is a greater good to love. There's a good that's much more fulfilling, much more important than the sum of the goods of the world. And I have overcome the world in its finite temporality. I've overcome the world in its duration. There's a promise of happiness and peace and wholeness for you beyond the finite duration of this life in heaven, in eternity. And thank God for that, right? I mean, this world's good and all. And we enjoy it, we love it, we're grateful for it. But thank God that this world is not all that there is, right? Because even the good things in this world that we like, well... To have them just forever, right, on repeat, eternally, forever, 
well, things would get kind of old, right? They wouldn't, ultimately, they wouldn't satisfy us. And imagine this, you know, welcome to Super Bowl 2,517. Tom Brady is 620 years old. And he's fighting for his, well, he'd be much older than that. In any event, you get the point that after a while, the things that we get so excited about, a new show, a new game, a new series, a, whatever, well, they would just lose their capacity to to entertain us, to thrill us. Only God can make us happy forever. We're made for God. St. Paul says this so clearly. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If for this life only we have hope in Christ, another translation. If for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Why? Well, Lord, because you gave us a greater good. You gave us God as our good. And God is eternal. And so as Christians, we've all implicitly or explicitly said no to this life as an end in itself. Said no to this life as our our goal for happiness. We've said no to riches. We've said no to pleasure, physical pleasure. We've said no to success and honors. We've said no to earthly security. We've said no to merely human loves as our happiness. Because you've introduced into our life a good and a love that's the source of all of that and, and much greater than all of that. And so if we're, li- if we're not living for the goods of this world because you raise us to a higher level, then it's pathetic and ridiculous to hope in God only for good outcomes in this life. If there's not eternal life, if there's not a fulfillment beyond this life, then St. Paul saying, what's the point? What's the use of trying to live in this way, of trying to worship God, if our end is not in God? Do not fear, only believe. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, help me to trust you. Help me to address my fears with belief, my fears with trust, as you tell Jairus to do. Even when things are very bad for me in this life or very difficult for me to accept or to understand. Remind me, Lord, that my home, my my safe place, my haven, my goal is not in this world, but in heaven with you. The Old Testament has several words for for hope and they're all helpful for our spiritual life they're all helpful for our prayer life a little disclaimer i don't actually know hebrew biblical hebrew i studied a little bit of it but um what i do know is how to use the internet <laughs> so there are these wonderful biblical study websites and the internet and tools and so if you do a little searching you'll find wonderful things and one of the one of the words for hope in the old testament is yakal and yakal primarily means to wait waiting on god what a helpful reality and and we see why it was present in the old testament that the people of israel had to go through long stretches of 
of difficulty, long stretches of discontent. Forty years wandering in the desert, generations before that of slavery in Egypt, the Babylonian exile. It's so many times where their prayer and their life took the form of hope, took the form of waiting on God, reminding God of his promises. Remember, Lord, your promises. Waiting, hopefully, for him to come back, to intervene, to restore them to prominence. In the book of Job, we have an, we have an example of this word, yakal. Job says, Although he slay me, I will hope in him. Although he slay me, I will wait on the Lord. I will wait, hopefully, on him. St. Therese of the Sioux read that line, and it and it really inspired her. It blew her away that God used that phrase to give her tremendous trust in God, that no matter what happened in this world, that God was good and that God loved her and gave her great patience in all sorts of trials and her long illnesses. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. She didn't have emojis back then, but if she was texting this to a friend instead of writing it in her letters or her journal, she would have used that mind-blow emoji right, where the top of, of her skull is being blown off by a mushroom cloud. Right? And this is a mind-blow reality that even though the worst happened to me, God is good. We can trust in Him. We can wait for His goodness. Another word for hope in, in Hebrew is kava. And kava means to expect. St. Jerome therefore translates it with the Latin word expecto. Expecta dominum et viriliter age. We read in Jerome's translation of the Psalms. And that's translated hope in the Lord and act courageously. But really it's not just hope in the Lord. It's expect the Lord. Expect him to come. He is coming. And in the meantime, in the midst of difficulties, act bravely, act courageously, counting on his help and counting on the arrival of his help. And that's helpful to us because hope in English is not a very strong word at times, whereas expect is, is much more confident, much stronger. Right? We say, well, I hope it doesn't rain. That's a weak desire. I mean, what can we do about that? It might rain, it might not, but who knows what's going to happen. Even worse, there's still hope. Right? When people say that, there's still hope, well, usually it means that, well, no, there's really not. Right? It's going, <laughs> this is going to end badly, and it's going to end badly soon. But to expect things to get better, to expect God to help us, that's the theological virtue of hope. God does love you. God is helping. And if he's not helping in the way that we expected or we wanted, that doesn't matter. He is who he is. He doesn't change. He is helping. And maybe he's shaping our desire for something greater. And then finally, in Hebrew, there's the word tikva. And tikva is very helpful. It means cord or attachment. And so hope is a cord, kind of lifeline, that God sends to us in times of trouble that we grab onto for our security. 
And we also grab onto it, we can imagine, for our direction, that if God throws us a rope, well, we're at one end of the rope, and he's at the other. And so we pull on the rope of hope, we end up with God, and God pulls us towards himself with that tikva, that cord. St. Augustine has a wonderful sermon in which he ties these ideas together. Will you love the things of time and pass away with time? Or rather not love the world and live to eternity with God? And so for Augustine, our destiny is bound up with the object of our love. What am I desiring? What am I seeking my happiness in? If it's in the world, I'll be temporal with the world. I won't live to eternal life. If it's in God, I'll live forever happily with God. The river of temporal things hurries one along. But like a tree sprung up beside the river is our Lord Jesus Christ. It was his will to plant himself in a manner beside the river of the things of time. Our condition as sinners is to be in this world, to be submerged in the cares of this world, which don't lead to eternal life, which lead to separation from God. And Jesus enters time. Jesus, who is God, who is eternal, enters time to give us an escape route, to give us a way out, to hand us that cord of hope, which can pull us up into heaven. It was his will to plant himself in a manner beside the river of the things of time, Art thou rushing down the stream to the headlong deep? Hold fast the tree. Is love of the world whirling thee on? Hold fast to Christ. For you he became temporal, that you might become eternal. The Lord for us shed his blood, redeemed us, changed our hope. As yet we bear the mortality of the flesh, and take the future immortality upon trust. And on the sea we are tossed by the waves, but we have the anchor of hope already fixed upon the land. The anchor of hope, the cord of hope, this access to heaven. Lord, on the cross you shed your blood, you redeemed us, and you changed our hope. You changed what we can trust in. No longer do we have to trust in ourselves. No longer do we have to always control our present or our future. We can rest in your care for us, no matter what is happening. And you change the object of our desire. No longer, Lord, do I have to try to find my happiness in myself or in others or in anything in this world. Because I can find it in you. Take the light in the Lord and you will give me the desires of my heart. And it's important, as a closing thought, it's important to remember that to hope in God, to have God as our trust, and to have God as the object of our happiness, is not to abandon the world. Sometimes this objection is made about Christians, that since we're looking forward to heaven, we kind of neglect history, neglect current events, or what's going on around us. And that's a false argument. Pope Benedict XVI makes this point in one of his writings. He says that when we truly discover God and we truly love God, well, it gives us the right relationship to the world. And it enables us to help the world more and to help history more. 
Because the world needs to be related rightly to God. And if we put God out of the picture, if we don't recognize that God is greater than the world, that he's the master of the world, that the world is made by him and, and for him, well, then we put too much pressure on the world to be something that it's not. And in that, we end up messing up the world, ruining it, because we're expecting too much of it, and we are trying to make it perfect in ways that it can't be perfect. And we're trying to bring about conditions of perfect behavior or perfect law-abidingness or perfect results in terms of behavior or equity or biological health. All these things that the world, perhaps because of our fallenness and because of its limited nature, all these things which are impossible to achieve in this, in this current order, in this life. And so instead of doing our best to be good and to take care of each other and to make just laws, but understanding that there will never be perfection in this life, utopia is a very dangerous thing to shoot for because it creates chaos and, and a lot of suffering. Instead of doing our best for the world, with this great hope and this wisdom of knowing that the world is not God and the world is not our end, we end up making things worse. Whereas if we, if we recognize the goodness of the world, the goodness of others, but also its limitations, and above all, that it comes from God, that he's the author and he's the end, well, then it frees us. It frees us to have a kind of lighter heart with respect to history and a lighter heart with respect to care for the world, care for each other. And approaching things with that lighter heart, with that trust in God, with that anchor in God, frees us to have a Christian optimism with regard to history. And so we said before, you know, things might not get better always and they might go wrong, and that's true. But they're definitely going to get worse unless, <laughs> unless we approach things with a deeper positive attitude. What does it mean to make things better? What does better look like? And the answer to those questions we only find in God and our faith. Because he's our true good. Because he's our true happiness. Because he's the source of all that is. We go to Our Lady. We call Our Lady our hope, the seed of wisdom, our hope handmaid of the Lord. And she's our hope, Lord, because she brings us to you and she brings you to us. And so we ask her, increase our hope. Increase the sense that no matter what the problem is, we can trust in you. Do not fear, only believe. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect, my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.